series. All right, so Psalm 96. I've titled the message this morning, The God Who is Worthy. The God Who is Worthy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to open your word and to see you in the Psalms and to see you in your word. And Lord, that is one of the ways in which you have given us uh, to see you, the special revelation of your word Lord, we can see you in creation, and creation testifies of your glory. But Lord, in your word, we can see you as you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, may we see the God who is worthy here here today. And I pray that, that we would leave today with a greater sense of your greatness and your majesty and your power. And I pray that you would help me this morning to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the ark of the Lord... The ark of God represents God's presence. God's presence would dwell in the ark of the covenant. And when the the ark was in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies, when the priest would go to make the sacrifices that go into the Holy of Holies, where the ark of God's presence was, you would they would have to have a rope tied to their ankle because when they would go in, if there was any uncleanness or sin in their life, they would they hit the ground dead. Sin cannot dwell in God's presence, and so they would pull them out, right? And so the ark of God represents God's presence. God's presence dwelled in the ark in one location. And so the ark of God ended up being stolen from Israel. You see that reference there in 1 Samuel chapter 4. The enemies of the people of Israel, the Philistines, they stole the ark of God. You see this in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And so the Philistines set up the ark of God, God's presence in the temple of a pagan god, of a false god, of Dagon. So they set up the ark in the temple of Dagon. 1 Samuel 5 tells us that, that the Philistines woke up the next morning and, and Dagon had, had done what? If you know your story, he had fallen down. So the Philistines said, oh, well, this is not good. Let's pick up Dagon. So they picked up Dagon and they put him back up on his feet whatever you would call it, and they set him back upright. And then the next day, what happened to Dagon? He fell down, but this time his head and his hands were gone, which was symbolic of the fact that he can't see, he can't do anything, he's powerless, he's a false god, the god of creation, the one true god. His presence was dwelling in that ark, and so the false god could not stand in his presence. And another thing happened to the Philistines. They started breaking out in tumors. So their deity had fallen down, their false deity had fallen down and was broken into pieces, and then they start breaking out in tumors. How many of you know you start breaking out in tumors, you put two and two together, and you're like, we got to get rid of whatever's causing this. And so they got rid, as quickly as possible, the Ark of the Covenant, and they brought it to the people of Ekron. Ekron, eventually, they, they were cursed because of the Ark being in their presence, and so they cried out for the Ark to leave, and the Israel gets the Ark back for a little short season. And if you study in 1 Samuel, they transported it incorrectly. It wasn't supposed to go on a cart. The Levites were supposed to hold it. The priests and Levites were supposed to, 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 to carry the cart, to carry the ark, but they put it on a cart. And Uzzah, who was leading the procession, carrying it incorrectly, died. And so Israel gets rid of the ark, and it ends up in the house of Obed-Edom. And Obed-Edom was a Gentile. Obed-Edom, a Gentile, gets the ark. And Obed-Edom, a Gentile, is blessed. Just when you think you can figure it out, right? He's blessed. 
And David, who's the king of Israel this time, he says, wait a minute. This doesn't make any sense. A Gentile's being blessed. We want the ark back. We need to get the ark back. And so David constructs, he constructs a, a, a tent, a tabernacle on Mount Zion, a temporary tabernacle on Mount Zion. And he goes and he gets the ark. He transports it correctly this time. And so this psalm, this is a unique psalm. This psalm, you can find it in 1 Chronicles 16. There's three psalms that were sung at the, at the celebration of the ark of God, God's presence being returned to the tabernacle, to God's people in 1 Chronicles 16. And the, almost the entire psalm, Psalm 96, is sung uh, at the coronation, at the celebration of God's ark, his presence coming back to God's people. And so this psalm is a song of praise for the dedication of David's tabernacle on, my, on Mount Zion. And this psalm also, it looks ahead to the kingdom age when Messiah will reign and the Gentiles will worship the God of Israel. And so this is the psalm, Psalm 96, the God who is worthy. Let's read the psalm. There's 13 verses and we'll see what the Lord will say to us out of this psalm. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Amen. It's God's word. What a song to sing. The dedication of the tabernacle, the ark of God's presence brought back to his people. And, and, and this psalm would be called an enthronement song or a kingly psalm. And so in this enthronement psalm, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see firstly a call to sing to the God who is worthy. And then we're going to see a comparison between the God of creation and the worthless idols of the people. And lastly, we'll look into the future when God will make all things new. So firstly, first thing we'll see from this psalm, the God who made the heavens is worthy of our song. The God who made the heavens is worthy of our song. Notice what the psalmist says. Look back at the first three verses. The psalmist begins, and many believe David wrote this psalm. It's not, it's not explicitly stated at the beginning of the psalm like a lot of his psalms are, but many believe David wrote this. And, and listen to how the psalmist starts. He says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. 
So the psalmist David begins with a, with a call to sing. And David would have gathered, you can see it in First Chronicles if you go back and you, and you read in First Chronicles when they, there was the procession of the ark going up Mount Zion to the, the tent of meeting to the tabernacle. There was the Levites and the worship leaders and the priests. They were, they were leading the processional up to the Mount Zion to, to bring the ark in its rightful place. And there would have been singing and song and instruments. And so the psalmist David begins and he says, sing to the Lord a new song. They were singing a song to the Lord as his presence was going with them up the mountain. So that's the first call the psalmist gives us to sing to the Lord a new Song. We, we sing to the Lord songs, don't we? But he says sing to the Lord a, a new song. That word new literally means fresh, a fresh song, a, a new song. I think the, the idea here is, is a call to God's people to respond in singing to a new act of deliverance by God for his people. A new song, a fresh song. I, I, I love what the prophet Jeremiah says about our God and his mercies. Jeremiah 3, it says that the Lord's mercies are new every morning. So here's what I thought about when I read this section about a new song. I think that every single day is a new opportunity because of the new mercies of God to sing a new song to our God. And so as David is is leading this procession, as the Levites and the musicians are leading this procession, he's declaring to the people, sing a new song. God has been faithful. God is good. He has kept us alive. He has provided for us and sustained us. And so let's sing a new song of worship to our God. What are the songs that we sing? What are the songs that you sing? You sing a new song? Think about the times that God has been faithful in your life. I think that's a moment, it's a time to break out in song. To break out in song. God, we thank you. Look, I don't sing very well, but I sing all the time. I sing all the time. I sing while I'm at work. I'm listening to music while I'm driving. I'm singing. I sing in the shower. I I sing everywhere. Because there's an overflow of a song that comes out of the heart of a believer. And we sing that new song because of the fresh mercies of God. And the psalmist is saying to the people of God, God has given us mercy and grace. And let's sing a fresh song that's coming out of our heart, an overflow of worship to our God. Amen? Now, what are we going to sing about? Well, he says next, tell of his salvation. That's what you sing about. He says, tell of his salvation. Sing to the Lord a new song. Tell of his salvation. You think Israel had a song to sing of his salvation? Think back to the history of Israel. What are all the songs that they could have sung of the new mercies of of Yahweh in their life? God had delivered them from Egyptian bondage. He had kept them alive for 40 years in the wilderness, and he had, he had ushered them in. The next generation was ushered into the promised land. And they could sing song after song of God's salvation in their life. And this is what I believe that David and the Levites are saying to the people of God. Sing to the Lord a new song, a fresh song, but also think back. Tell of his salvation. Sing about his salvation. Tell of his wondrous works. And, and I would say for us here today, we should sing songs of the great salvation we have in Christ. Should we not? So one of the things that we sing about when we gather together, it's one of the things that we should sing about when we gather together every Sunday. The song should center around the great salvation we have in Christ. That's what unifies us together in our song. It's this great salvation. We have much to sing about, don't we? I love what 
2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us if you want to know the gospel in one verse, this is gospel in one verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It's not going to be on the screen there for you, but listen to this. For our sake, he made him sin. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. That's the great salvation, that God became man, that Christ who knew no sin, became sin, so that we might become something that we're not. We are sinful, we are unholy, we are unworthy of salvation, but God and his son, he came and he took our place, he died for us, so that we could become the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And my brothers and my sisters, that is what we tell of. That is what we sing of. We sing a new song and we tell of his salvation. And the next, look what it says. It says, declare his glory and his works among all people. So we must sing a new song. We must tell of his salvation. And we must tell everybody, right? We got to tell everybody. We have to tell everybody of this salvation, of his glory and his works among all nations, it says, all people. I, I love what the Treasury of David commentary says about this. It says this, his salvation is his glory. The world, the the word of the gospel glorifies him. And this should be published far and wide till the remotest nations of the earth have known it. Amen? We have to tell the world of his salvation. We must sing that new song. We must sing that fresh song of of thankfulness and gratefulness to God and his care for us. And we must tell of his salvation. And we must tell the nations of the world. I love, I love what, Jordan, what Jordy and Heather are doing, right? As, as missionaries, they are telling of the salvation of God in Haiti. And they're rescuing orphans and they're leading them to Christ. The gospel must go far and wide. It must spread. And this is what the psalmist is saying to God's people. And he's, what he's saying to us today, God is saying that we must declare his glory and his works among all people. Amen? So what, what's the psalmist saying? The psalmist is saying, in short, sing. Sing. He's saying sing. We are called to sing. God's people are a singing people. We are called to sing. Listen to what the word of God says in other places about our call to sing. Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. How many righteous do we have here today? Child of children of God, saved by grace. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. It means it fits us that we would praise God in song. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him. And that, that, that's a, what's, what's a lyre? It's a string. Is a lyre a stringed instrument, right? Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Another reference of a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Amen. Psalm 98. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Some of us, that's what we say we do, right? That's the built-in joke for us who can't sing. We make a joyful noise. We may not sing on key, but it's going to come out. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. There's a lyre again. With the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king, before the Lord. 
Colossians 3, into the New Testament. I, I love this verse, Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So where do songs come from that we sing? They, came, they, come from, they should come from the word of God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching, this is what we're doing this morning. We're teaching, we're admonishing one another in wisdom. Singing psalms. We obeyed that earlier, didn't we? Psalm 8, we sang, we read a psalm. It came from the word of God, then we sung a psalm. We sing the word, we read the word of God, we sing the word of God, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, hymns are good, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So God's calling us to sing. The God who made the heavens is worthy of our song. So I want to encourage you. I'm going to poke a little bit. Is it okay if I poke just a little bit? Those of you who come in a little late and you miss the first, second song, you're missing out. I know, I know for some of you, you barely get here, so God bless you. God bless you. You're here, you barely, you roll in here, you barely get here. I get it, I understand it. Uh, it, it we had those seasons of life with when we had young kids, but I'm telling you if, you, if 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 you're coming just to hear the message, I think you're missing out on such a great unity. It's not about our experience, people. Listen, it's not about the experience that we have when we are singing songs, you may not like how the songs sound. You may not like the song selection. You may think the lights need to be different, that, 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 that all of it needs to be, whatever. It's not about that. It's about the songs, and it's about the people, and it's that we're called to be singers. We're called to sing songs. Songs are powerful instruments that God has given us to unify together to worship our God. Think about it for a second. Think about how powerful music is. Think about how unique songs are. Think about the unique differences in every worship song that is written. Have you ever found one worship song that's exactly the same? Think about the thousands of years that Christians have been writing hymns and worship songs. And there's never a repeat. It's a new song. It's a new song. And think about the different chord progressions and the different melodies from all the church history. Christians have been writing songs and singing songs, new melodies, new words. That, that is such an amazing thing. I, I, I think about the lawsuit that, that just happened. Um, who was that guy who sued, who was getting sued? Help me out. Ed Sheeran. Right? Because somebody said that he stole something from somebody with another song. The song sounded very similar, but it really wasn't exactly the same. He got into some music theory about chord progressions. There are certain chord progressions that are the same in every song, potentially in every song, right? But, but all songs are different in some way, shape, or form. New lyrics, new words, new melodies. Think about it. It speaks to the limitlessness of our God. And we are called to sing. We're called to sing. When do, you, when do you sing? When do you sing? Called to sing always, aren't we? What did we learn last time, last week? I will bless the Lord at all times. What a great joy it is to sing during times of praise and thanksgiving. Isn't that joyful? We get to sing. We, we've, we've had a victory. We, we, we've had our prayers answered. We've been praying for something, and, and we just have that sense of praise and thanksgiving. That's wonderful times to sing before the Lord, and you're skipping around the house, and you're, and you're doing cartwheels, and you're singing, and you're dancing, and you're high-fiving and your family, and it's great. It's wonderful, and we sing during those times, and those are times that are easy to sing, but, but I will tell you some of the most sweet times to sing are in times of sorrow and grief. 
where the song just comes up from the depth of your heart and you're sorrowful and you're full of grief. I'll never, ever, ever forget for the rest of my life the image in my mind. Troy and Kara Castile had lost their daughter Gabby in a car wreck. She was 20, 21 years old, really young. We had her memorial service here, and Troy Castile was sitting in the front right here, and he wanted to have a worship service, and they had worship songs, and Troy has both of his hands up into the sky, into the air, worshiping his God. Just thinking about it now moves me. In times of grief and sorrow at the loss of a loved one, of loss of a child, we sing. The times of confusion and despair, we sing. We don't know, God, I don't know what's going on, what's happening, why are you doing what you're doing, what, what's happening next, what's the next season going to look like? God, we're confused, we're, we're worried, we're, we're burdened. We sing, we sing. God, we, we thank you for the gift of song. We can sing about you. We can sing about your faithfulness. We can sing about your goodness. We can, we can sing that you will never fail us. We can remind ourselves through the gift of music who you are and, and what you have done and your faithfulness. Amen? I love what John Piper says about singing. Christian singing is the musical use of the voice to express truth that accords with God's word. And Christian singing is a musical use of the voice to express feelings that accords with God's worth. It is a gift beyond measuring. Is it not? It's a gift beyond measuring. So the first thing we see in this psalm is that the God who made the heavens is worthy of our song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Now look, 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 look next what the psalm shows us. So we, we see that the God who made the heavens is worthy of our song. Secondly, next we see the gods of the peoples. What are they? They're worthless idols. You know, people sing to idols too, though, right? People sing to false gods. They sing to their false gods. They sing in many, 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 many ways. They give worship to their false gods. But though we might sing to our idols, they are worthless songs sung to worthless gods. Only the God of the heavens, only the God who made the heavens is worthy of our song. The gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Look back to the text, Psalm 96. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. The psalmist now moves to comparison. He says, hey, hey, you need to sing to the God who made the heavens. He's the one that's to be feared. But the gods of the peoples, they're worthless idols. You, you should not sing to them. Don't give them reverence. Don't give them honor. Don't give them lip service. Yahweh made the heavens. The Lord made the heavens. Yahweh did that. The God of Scripture is the God of creation. The God of Israel. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one who made all things. He's the one to whom we should fall down in reverence and fear. He is to be feared above all gods. Do we fear God today? Have, have, have we lost that today? What about us today? What, what, what does it mean to fear God? Psalm 96 says that the God of creation should be feared above all gods. I think sometimes we don't like the word fear in connection with God because it makes us nervous to think 
that we would, that God would ever be feared. But I want you to know there's a time coming for those who have not found mercy and grace that he is to be feared. Have not found safety in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is to be feared. We'll look at that here in a moment. But to fear God in a general sense is, is somebody who has realized who he is and who they are, who he is as holy and just and righteous, and who we are, who I am as unholy and not righteous. And they have submitted to his authority in reverence and honor of him. This is what it means to fear God. Do we fear God as a society? Do we fear God? I don't see it in our culture here today. And this is why mankind throughout history has sought to eliminate God as creator, because here's what can happen. If we will eliminate God as creator... We don't have to fear God anymore. If there is no creator, this is why the theory of evolution, this is why evolutionary science is from the pit of hell. We can never take scripture and evolution and bring them together. It doesn't work. There is no such thing as theistic evolution, people. God made what we see out of nothing, Genesis says. When we capitulate and we try to bring in evolution to Scripture, we are compromising because a godless world wants to eliminate God as creator because if we can eliminate God as creator, then we have no God to fear, we have no accountability to anyone, no lawgiver, and we can live however we want to live and we can worship the gods that we want, even the gods of our own making. So that's what we do. We create our own gods. That's, that's what the text says, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols. We, we, we create our own gods. The psalmist says, says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Why? He's saying because he made the heavens. But he's also saying, he's saying that people don't want that God. They want their own God. And as people, we were designed by our creator to worship. That's why music is powerful. That's why song is powerful. We're made to worship not only with our song, but with our life. It's powerful. And because people don't want to worship the God of the heavens, they worship the God of their own making. The prophet Isaiah speaks to the folly of idol worship. I I love the description here in Isaiah 44. Before we get to the text, the first few verses there, it says that a man plants a tree. The rain nourishes it. It grows up to a, a mighty tree, and he cuts it down, and he, he uses wood, and it gives, he use, well, it gives him shade. Then he cuts it down, and he uses the wood to, to, to make food for himself, to, to, to cook food on a fire. And look at verse 16 and 17, Isaiah 44. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he says, hey, let's make a God, his idol. And he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. You know what that reminds me? It reminds me of the children of Israel. When Moses was on top of the mountain seeking God, where's Moses? Where's God? We need something to worship. They took all their gold in the fire and they and out as as they said, out popped out popped a calf. This is kind of what I think about here in Isaiah 44. 
We, we just make our own gods. We don't want the God. And it's interesting in, in, in Exodus 19, when, when God thunders from the mountain because he, 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 he is angry at his people for rejecting him and rebelling against him. We don't want that accountability. We don't want to be surrendered to the God of creation, to the God who is lawgiver. You know, the, the only problem, though, is that with the gods that we make, our own gods, the, the problem is, is that they're powerless to do anything. Look at what Psalms 115 says. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak, eyes, but they don't see. Like Dagon, right? His head's gone, his hands are gone. They have ears, but don't hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. I love what Charles Spurgeon says here. Man fashions for himself a God after his own liking. He makes to himself, if not out of wood or stone, yet out of what he calls his own consciousness or his cultured thought, a deity to his taste. He rejects God as he is and elaborates other gods such as he thinks the divine one ought to be. Did you follow that? Basically, man makes God, makes a God into whatever they think God should be. But the God who made the heavens is worthy of our song. But the gods of the peoples, man-made gods, are worthless. In essence, they do nothing. These gods can do nothing. The only thing they really can do, false idols, false gods, the only thing they can do is steal praise from the one true God. Stolen praise. They steal praise from the one true God. It's kind of like this. You've ever heard of stolen valor? You've heard of stolen valor? Stolen valor is a term applied to the phenomenon of people falsely claiming military awards or medals they did not earn, service they did not perform, prisoner of war experiences that never happened, and other tales of military actions that exist only in their mind right? Stolen praise, stolen valor. Stolen praise is like stolen valor, and this is what false gods do. They steal praise from the one true God. So my question for us today is, is what man-made idols do we worship in our culture today that steal praise from the one true God? I mean, we could talk about that for a while, couldn't we? Here's a little list. Money. Materialism. Right? We, we, we worship that today, and we, we as Christians can even be tempted to, to, to add to the chorus of praises in that direction. We can set our affections on money or materialism or things, and we can begin to, 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 to move our worship from the one true God, and we can begin to worship things along with the culture, money, materialism, experience. That, uh, that, that, that's another false idol of, of our culture, experience-driven living, power. Our world worships power and influence, and control. Sexual pleasure. Sexual pleasure, and I have another one here, self-autonomy right now. That's, that's kind of going together right now. I, I, my, I, I worship my autonomous self. I have control over my own life. I want to do what I want to do, live how I want to live, express myself sexually however I want to express it, and, and the, the, the bounds, the, the, the limits are off now. We don't know where it's going to stop or where it's going to end. The self-expression of the worship of the autonomous self, 
to seek self-fulfillment and sexual pleasure in any and every form and way that's possible. This is the idol of our culture. These are the idols of our culture. And they make terrible gods to be worshipped. Terrible gods. The God who made the heavens is the only one that's worthy of our worship. As a way to to illustrate this, many of you who's ever watched the Lord of the Rings or or Lord of the Rings fans, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote his trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, in the 1950s, and it wasn't a movie. Who's read the books? Would you admit that in church? (laughs) I don't know. Should you admit that in church? Uh, But J.R.R. Tolkien, it's a a Christian series. And and you'll see, it's a point here behind what he's making. I think it's a really interesting point here. Uh, One of his readers... Uh, just thought that the plot was ridiculous. This woman thought the plot was crazy. Like, you have this being that has all this power and ability, and it's reduced down to the one little ring, and if he loses the ring, it's gone. This is what she says. Here you have this great evil supernatural being. He has all this unassailable power. He has enormous armies and great fortresses, and he has all this supernatural power, but he has also this little ring. And when this ring of fire is thrown into the fires of Mount Doom, it all melts down and he loses everything. And she says, that's too incredible that all his power could be lost with one ring. Obviously, she knows it's fantasy, but she just thinks it's stupid. So Tolkien writes back. He says, quote, the ring of, Cel- of, C- of Celeron, the ring of Celeron, is only one of the various mythical ways of treating or explaining the placing of one's life or power in some external object which is thus exposed or captured to destruction with disastrous results to oneself. In short, what Tolkien says is this. When we place our life in some external object, when it collapses, we collapse. That's the point. When we worship things that were never meant to be gods, when we place things above God, when those things are gone, we collapse. This is, a, this is idolatry. This is false worship. Many of you know that Tim Keller passed away on Friday, the 19th. And I know for many of you, Tim Keller, he's written many books uh, that have been very impactful in the body of Christ. I really looked up to Tim Keller, respected his ministry And he wrote some very powerful books that impacted my life that I think I would recommend to you as well. But Tim Keller, I think it fitting to quote Tim Keller around the subject of idolatry. Listen to what Tim Keller said. The human heart is an idol factory that takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance, security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. Our hearts are idol factories, Keller says. And our hearts will go after 
making good things, ultimate things, and diverting our worship of the one true God into false idols. And the psalmist David is saying this in Psalm 96. He's saying, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the God of creation. He is the only one worthy of our songs. And the gods of the peoples, the Dagons that have fallen down, the false idols, they are worthless. The gods of the peoples are worthless. Only the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh God is the only one that's worthy of worship. Christ, for us as believers, he is the only one worthy of our worship. And may we worship him. May we sing to him. Amen? The God who made the heavens is worthy. The gods of the peoples are worthless. And lastly this morning, the God who comes in judgment will make all things new. The God who comes in judgment will make all things new. So, the psalmist has called us to sing and to say to sing and to preach, to sing and to declare, to sing to the God of the heavens because he's worthy. By contrast, the psalmist has reminded us that the gods of the peoples are worthless gods, worthless idols who steal praise that belongs only to God. Now in these closing verses, the psalmist reminds us of something that is coming. There's an anticipatory language here. Look at verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the world in equity. He will judge the world in equity. It's speaking about a time that is going to come, the kingdom age. There will be a time when God will judge the world in equity. He will judge the peoples with equity. And, and this is reason to celebrate. It's reason to celebrate. You think of judgment. You think of judgment, you think, well, it's not time to celebrate, but listen to the language that the psalmist continues. He says he will judge the people's inequity. Look at verse 11 and 12. So then, right, he'll judge the people's inequity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. He says, hey, the, the Lord will judge the world in equity. Rejoice. Let the trees sing for joy. You guys ever saw Chronicles of Narnia? Maybe C.S. Lewis was right. The trees do talk. They're singing trees. I don't know. Hey, we know nothing of what it was, and we don't know what it will be. I wouldn't be shocked if we got some singing trees in the kingdom. Rejoicing. It reminds me of Romans 8, doesn't it? Romans 8 talks about how the earth is subjected to, fut to futility, right? We're, we're under the curse. We're, this is not the kingdom age. Hallelujah. We know this is not the kingdom age. This is not the, this is not the time where Christ is ruling and reigning in his fullness. And so, so we have this time where, where, where we're groaning, we're longing for redemption. Look at Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. Creation, the trees, the sea, the earth itself, and the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So I want to pause here. There's a, a distinction I'm going to make here. Okay, so, so I believe that the psalmist here is speaking to the, of the righteous judgment that our Lord will rule with when he reigns in righteousness in his kingdom. But I think it's, we have to pause and we have to think about the, the terrible judgment of the Lord. There is a terrible judgment of God that's coming that Scripture tells us about. And it's one that men should fear and tremble over. 
There's a time coming when evil will be judged and evil men will be judged for their evil deeds. And eternal judgment is coming for all of those who were not found in the end hiding in the refuge of Christ. Let me say that again. There is a time of eternal judgment that's coming for all of those who are not found hiding in the refuge of Christ and his salvation. That time is coming. I like how Jonathan Edwards says it. Your good deeds cannot keep you out of hell any more than a spider web can stop a falling rock. There's a time of judgment coming where all of your good deeds, uh, they amount to nothing. They're as filthy rags. They will not grant you entrance into eternal heaven with our Lord. But I believe that the psalmist here is speaking of that time when believers are going to celebrate in the fact that there will be no more injustice, no more evil, no more sin and suffering and sickness, and all will be made right. All will be made right. So the, 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 the call is, is that you can escape that ultimate judgment. You can f- be found hiding in Christ, and you can celebrate the coming of his judgment. You don't have to live in fear of his judgment. I love what Keller said. Uh, his last words were said uh, by his son. He posted on Twitter, and Keller said, I am ready to be with Jesus. I'm ready to see Jesus. And that can be you. And, and simply, if, if you would repent and believe in the gospel, you would turn your back on sin, you would embrace Christ as your only means for justification and righteousness before God, you can escape, you can, have the, you, you can fall on the rock, which is Christ Jesus, instead of the rock falling on you. You can be born again today. And you can rejoice in the day where evil will be no more, sin will be no more, suffering and sickness will be gone. The created world rejoices in in anticipation of that day. You know, when you look at the world today, there's a twistedness to the world, is there not? There's a twistedness from the standard of God's word and what is right and good and true. The way, the way I, I see it today is it's like our moral equilibrium is off. You ever had your equilibrium off? You, you just, can't, just can't get your balance. You just can't make forward momentum. You just, your equilibrium is off. You're, you're dizzy. And that's what I see in our society today. It is so twisted, so off the center. You don't know. It feels like, will it ever come back? Each passing day, is another revelation of how twisted it really is. And with each passing day, for us as believers, the cry is, Lord, even so, come quickly. Lord, come and bring justice. Lord, come and make things right. And each and every passing day, we should also make a call to those who are lost, who who are in twisted states in their heart and in their mind. You feel that weight, don't you, right? But there's a time where he's going to come. And he's going to make all things right. Look at the last verse. For he comes. This is prophetic. This is a time that's to come for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness. 
and the peoples in his faithfulness. He's coming, my brothers and sisters. The day of the Lord is coming. Like a thief in the night, he's going to come. He's going to restore. He's going to heal. He is going to bring us home. Theologian Walter D. Zorn says this about that day. When God comes to judge righteously and faithfully, it will be a time so to be desired that all the forces of heaven and earth can rejoice and be glad. Evil will have been dealt with and righteousness will have triumphed. Righteousness will have triumphed. And so, when I thought about concluding this message, this is what I thought of. In light of all of this, that our God who made the heavens is worthy of our song. The gods of the peoples are worthless idols. And there's a time that's coming when he's going to judge and he's going to make things right. He's going to restore. He's going to heal. Justice will be true. Justice in this earth. Evil will be gone. Christ, the, the kingdoms of our God will be the kingdoms of this earth. And we will rule and reign with him in his kingdom and so when I think about that, I think about that picture. I, I, this is how I want us to end here this morning. I think we can pray as our Lord taught us to pray. We can pray this prayer right now. Would you pray it with me? The Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6. Let's pray it all out loud together. This is what we pray right now in the meantime, in the waiting time, in the time, in the twisted time, in the time when it seems like righteousness won't prevail, in that time, in that moment, This is what we sing. This is what we say. This is what we pray. Would you pray with me? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.